do science fiction creators make sure their protagonist is included in the action? What is a familiar construct that will let the audience feel comfortable in a brave new world? Military science fiction is a huge subgenre of sci-fi and literature, specifically set in space, because we imagine conflict and action when we think of the military. And in science fiction, the stakes have to be high. Whenever there's a war against robots, another planet, or giant creatures, having a spotlight on a soldier or a squadron in the military will make for a really good story. Military science fiction can also help authors and creators process the realities of war. I wanted to focus on a specific time in our history. The most iconic works of military science fiction were written during the Cold War. Space exploration, paranoia of communist infiltration, and fear of nuclear war all converged together and became recognizable themes and allegories that are still relevant today. This is Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly, and this episode I'm discussing military science fiction and the Cold War. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash factandsci-fi. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So download your free audiobook today at audibletrial.com slash factandsci-fi. One of my favorite examples of military science fiction is Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers was written by Robert Heinlein in 1959. The movie Starship Troopers was directed by Paul Verhoeven, the same director as RoboCop and Total Recall, which I briefly uh, talked about in the last episode. While Paul Verhoeven films are often very cheesy and gory, they have a lot of social commentary in them. In Starship Troopers universe, it's the distant future where humans are suddenly attacked by a bug planet. The main characters all enlist after graduating high school, and in this future, civilians don't become citizens, like they don't even have the right to vote until they serve. It's not a requirement, but it definitely puts you in a higher status to be a veteran, leading to this future society as one being of military elite. While the main action doesn't really take place until the arachnids, who have been quiet for years, send an asteroid to strike Earth. The tension between the enemies was inspired by the Cold War, which was near its peak in 1959 when the book was published. Critics and fans suggested that the Arachnid enemy were supposed to be communists, and the book suggests that imperialists like the U.S. would not be truly successful until they wiped all the bugs out. The film includes short propaganda videos between scenes that look similar to World War II advertisements, do your part for the war and what have you. There are images of children stomping on roaches. It's really easy to go to war and destroy every single one of your enemies when they're not humans. But this would lead to a nation constantly at war, Heinlein thought, which is a clear reality in the novel. Like a lot of Heinlein's work, in the future, humans have developed psychic abilities for use in the military, which we know now that uh, the military was interested in kind of unlocking the power of the human mind um, using drugs like LSD. But other than that, Starship Troopers definitely features the heavy losses of war and commitment and camaraderie of troops. 
It also involves a lot of interplanetary battles and starships, themes and images we see a lot in military science fiction. So I started getting interested in the idea of the militarization of space. A few months ago, I saw a talk by Sean Callick for his book, U.S. Presidents and the Militarization of Space, between the years 1946 and 1967, which is a very specific time frame, but it's right in the beginning and middle of the Civil War. When I first went to that talk, I wasn't exactly sure what I was expecting. Whenever I think of the militarization of something, I think of weapons and of war. Um, But there's a decision made by Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson that as soon as it was feasible to go to space, that it wouldn't be used for war, at least not used for weapons. The U.S. and more than a 100 other nations signed off on the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, pledging not to base weapons of mass destruction in space or on celestial bodies. That was a course set in our country by a succession of presidents, like I mentioned Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson, who believed in preserving the heavens as an arms-free frontier for the benefit of all humanity. The main exception to this would be Star Wars, or the Strategic Defense Initiative, which is the actual defense system in the 1980s. It was a huge project to detect and destroy incoming nuclear weapons from the ground and from space. The space-based weapon, called Brilliant Pebbles, was meant to literally blow nuclear bombs out of the sky using small missiles. This idea of defense against nuclear weapons was counter to the policy of nuclear weapon detente in place for decades. It's a place we're in right now where if one country launches nuclear weapons, the rest will, and it will lead to mutually assured destruction. So that kind of stops everyone from making that first strike. The Strategic Defense Initiative was criticized because it added a new level of tension on an already tense situation. For example, if the U.S. had this defense system to attempt to protect against retaliation, it might further frighten enemies who would feel they had to attack first. But many people wanted to undermine the mutually assured destruction policy of the United States. And some of these people and policy influencers were science fiction authors. Chad Andrews wrote that in America in the 1980s, a group of science fiction authors played a role in the development of influential policies and technologies, including Ronald Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative. Guided by writers such as Heinlein himself and Larry Niven and astronaut Buzz Aldrin, they formed an advocacy group, the Citizens Advisory Council on National Space Policy, in order to undermine the Cold War policy of mutually assured destruction eventually titling their work Mutually Assured Survival, and support the development of new technologies capable of weaponizing space as a means to protect the American homeland. The Citizens Advisory Council published THOR, Orbital Weapon System, in 1983. Andrews wrote that it appeared not in a work of official policy or strategic planning, but instead within the humble confines of a popular series of science fiction anthologies titled There Will Be War, 1983-1990. to Each volume included sci-fi stories alongside poetry, committee reports, meditations on military virtue, excerpts from strategic planning documents, and a range of additional texts, many of which, whether fiction or not, are to varying degrees preoccupied with the theatricalization of war, and offer awe-inspiring portrayals of advanced military technologies. 
in the spectacular devastation that inexorably follows. This is straight from Chad Andrews' um, journal article. We would recognize this policy as the shock and awe policy used in the Iraq War. British writer Roger Lockhurst believed that further militarization and weaponization of space would lead to colonizing the moon and mining for raw materials on asteroid belts and other planets. Andrews argues in his paper that these works by the Citizens Advisory Council influenced the discourse around how we talk about weapons and the military through the 1980s to today. War became theater, a media event, a never-ending race for the best technology. Even though the Strategic Defense Initiative was decommissioned after the Cold War, we have returned to this policy of mutually assured destruction when negotiating with countries such as North Korea and Iran. Ideas from that time still remain, though. Even though space is free from weapons of mass destruction, it was vital for other tools of the Cold War. From the years right after World War II, the U.S. military had been partnering with private corporations to build reconnaissance satellites. Photo reconnaissance, ballistic missile early warning, intelligence gathering, communication, navigation, and weather data collection were all used by the U.S. military. While our imaginations run wild with novels and films about interstellar war, in reality, the thought of it had frightened nearly every world leader for 80 years. In fact, it was so important to relieve tensions between the U.S. and the Kremlin and our allies that NASA is still maintained as a civilian organization. Even though most early astronauts and staff there were veterans. Today, technology that can be used for military purposes often gets the most funding, and a lot of that technology was inspired by science fiction. We discussed the tough exoskeleton suits for soldiers in the health episode, and a big part of the SDI was dedicated to weaponizing lasers. Funding for the military has increased by trillions of dollars because of the Cold War. Ronald Reagan and most Americans during that time felt that our survival depended on the U.S. having the largest and strongest military force. And if we couldn't reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the world, that we'd have the technology to detect when a missile was fired. For you, the listeners of Fact and Science Fiction, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Now, if you listen to podcasts, then you should definitely listen to audiobooks. I recommend Jeff Vandermeer's book, Annihilation, about four female scientists and their exploration of the mysterious Area X. Listen to the audiobook before you see the movie. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash factandsci-fi. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash factandsci-fi for your free audiobook. Another novel that was inspired by the Cold War is Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. I read about a teacher online who assigned Ender's Game to kids to learn about the Cold War. While Orson Scott Card turned out to be a giant homophobe, um, I still think of Ender's Game pretty fondly. In Ender's Game, humans again are at war with an insectoid race that they can neither understand nor predict. They call them buggers. At this point in the future, humans are recruiting children as young soldiers and training them at a battle school. 
Ender Wiggin is the main character who, along with his siblings, are shown to be naturals and military tactics and politics. So these child soldiers play virtual games and spar in zero-G, and Ender becomes excellent at it. At the end of the book, Ender is depressed and fed up with being socially isolated, so he decides to throw the war game by sacrificing his entire fleet to blow up the alien planet. But it turns out these virtual war games were real, and Ender had committed genocide to win the war. This idea that only total destruction would stop the war was a big fear during the Cold War. Um, And another example, uh, Ray Bradbury's short story, There Will Come Soft Rains, written in 1951, illustrates this fear of mutually assured destruction when a fully automated house maintains order after a nuclear bomb has wiped out humanity. I just bring that up because it popped up a lot in science fiction and just in a lot of fiction around that time because it was such a a deep fear and paranoia that if this war were to turn into a hot war, that everyone's survival was threatened. Ender's siblings um, write political essays and put them on a digital community, a precursor to the internet, and his older brother Peter becomes a politician who wants to take advantage of Ender's successes for his own perverse ambition. Uh, Some critics and fans online compare Peter to um, like a young Hitler whose ambition um, and pragmatism would lead him to dark ends. Ender instead decides to become a, a voice for his slain enemies in the rest of the series. Both Starship Troopers and Ender's Game focus on the moral absolutism between the humans and the insect enemies. It isn't until the end of Ender's Game that Ender learns that the buggers at first didn't mean any harm. They assumed humans weren't a sentient race because they didn't have a hive mind. Other books like A Madeline Langle's A Wrinkle in Time and and these books feature an enemy that shares a central intelligence or hive mind. And that was a an allegory to, to how we believed communists thought, that everybody had the same political beliefs and that it was an enemy that if you interact with one communist, you're helping the communist hive. During the Cold War, there was no middle ground between sides. The U.S. and the Soviets fought over other territories. This led to a lot of suspicion and paranoia of our fellow citizens, neighbors, and friends. I recently read Rachel Maddow's book Drift, The Unmooring of American Military Power. It was all about how since the Cold War, the military budget had increased by way more than what it was before the Cold War. It changed how we viewed other countries and America's responsibility in promoting democracy in foreign lands, even if that meant by force. Under the belief that if we did not place democratic governments across the world, that democracy itself would be destroyed was a new belief um, because of the Cold War and because of our hatred of communism. And hatred of communism or even socialist leanings turned Hollywood and other industries into a witch hunt. One thing I wanted to say about NASA, I mentioned that it's maintained as a civilian organization, and that was very deliberate um, because they wanted to uh, avoid tension um, about a military organization just about space. So, um, And that led to a lot of collaboration across countries, um, despite any kind of um, tension or military conflict. Um, I 
read Packing for Mars by Mary Roach last year. And um, Scott Kelly talks about it in his um, biography, Endurance, about how the U.S. and the Russians really collaborated on space travel uh, after the the space race. Um, They still go and um, launch rockets from the base in Russia, and they the Russians still use technology that they used in the 60s through 80s. Scott Kelly has a really good anecdote where basically why improve it if it's not broken is kind of the Russians' philosophy about it. So I just thought it was interesting that while all of this stuff is going on in the Cold War, uh, NASA was able to collaborate with maybe not enemies at that point, but still really tense diplomatic relations. So I really think it's an interesting topic to look into, and I recommend um, Packing for Mars by Mary Roach. I recently listened to uh, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers. They had a short series about the Cold War. And America wanted to place these democratic governments in countries in Africa, but then whenever they would turn on uh, the radio or look at the newspapers, they saw, you know, black Americans being subjugated by their own government. So it kind of inspired um, Johnson and Kennedy to be more aggressive in their support of the civil rights movement just because of the optics around the Cold War and communism. Maybe it was a mix of they thought it was the right thing to do and it would help the U.S. in the Cold War. Throughout the Cold War, between constant conflict in Korea and Indochina, the power to send troops was consolidated to the president, which is also a new development because of the Cold War. Now, the president can decide where to send troops without um, Congress's approval, which is granted the power under the Constitution. It began to be disrespectful to show the horrors of war and the fallen soldiers returning home, kind of separating civilians from the difficulties of war. There are adults now who have never experienced a country in peacetime. Fears of communism turned the U.S. into the kind of country Robert Heinlein predicted in Starship Troopers, a country constantly at war. And these kinds of narratives of our wartime enemies being our enemies because of their values, our kind of paranoia and stereotyping of every single one of our enemies in this country is our enemy, not just the government. We can see that pop up in the Iraq War and Afghanistan. And that is a new development because of the Cold War. And maybe Chad Andrews was right that science fiction authors and their rejection of the mutually assured destruction policy contributed to the way our discourse is around war and our enemies now. Research from this episode came from Rachel Maddow's Drift, Chad Andrews' article, Technomilitary Fantasy in the 1980s, Military Science Fiction, David Drake and the Discourse of Instrumentality, and Wondry's American History Tellers. 
big news for the podcast, Fact and Science Fiction will have a live show in Las Vegas, April 6th through the 8th for Klexicon, a media and fandom convention for LGBTQ women and allies. It's also a really good convention if you're a science fiction or fantasy fan. Um, guests include actors from Carmilla, Person of Interest, The Lost Girl, Supergirl, and Legends of Tomorrow, among many others. Uh, check Twitter and Facebook at Fact and Sci-Fi for updates about that. I'm not sure what day um, or what time during Clexicon I'll be doing my podcast, but sometime around there. Subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Please, I'm still hurting for those ratings, and that helps more people discover the podcast. Uh, check out the transcript for this episode and more content at factandsci-fi.blogspot.com. And lastly, thanks for listening. <laughs>